and welcome to Country Bible Church. My name is Andrew, and I'm one of the pastors on staff, and we're so glad that you guys are here with us this morning, and want to welcome our online community as well, both 9:15 and 11 live streaming. We're glad that you guys are able to be a part of what God is doing here at our church. Let me invite you to grab your Bibles. Go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to the book of John, the Gospel of John. In the New Testament, it's going to be just over halfway through your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. One of our ushers would love to bring you a Bible as a gift. This Bible is yours to have and to keep. And we just encourage you to bring it with you each and every week as this is the foundation of our faith for which we build our relationship with Christ. And so we invite you to bring your Bibles each and every week. Turn to the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 8. We'll get there in just a moment. Hey, I want to take a minute to celebrate some of the amazing things that God is doing at our church. I love that I do this often and that as a community, we have reason to do this often. Last week, we had our annual pie auction youth fundraiser, which we raised support. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We raised support uh, to send our kids to uh, an overseas mission, either Dominican Republic or Nicaragua. And this year, we are sending 24, 23 to Nicaragua. We are excited about that. But I want to let you guys know that this last Sunday, we held our annual pie auction. And two things I want to celebrate. Number one. It was the largest attended pie auction on record. We had more people turn out to the pie auction last week than we have had in years past. Yes. <laughs> Praise God. The second cool thing that I want to report is that last week, as a church, we raised over $17,500 that is going to these students to send them, which is the largest. That beat our other record giving by over $2,000, you guys. So way to step up, church. Way to step up. They're headed out uh, in July, and so we're going to have some time to hear from them and pray for them before they go, and we'll hear from them and praise God with them when they return. But what an amazing way to step up, church. You guys uh, are just an absolute joy as a pastor to be a part of this community with you. So thank you guys. Continue to ask Lisa and their ministry team how we can bless them as they head off. All right, John chapter 8. It is hard to believe that we are on the home stretch of this series enough that we started five weeks ago on Easter Sunday. There's been one common thread throughout each and every one of these five messages, including today's message, and that is that you don't have to be good enough because God is enough. Week one, we looked at an encounter that Jesus has with a religious leader named Nicodemus. We talked about the weight of the world that we take upon ourselves when we try to live up to some standard of being good enough that we cannot measure up against. That it's exhausting to try to be something that we were not created to be. That without God, we will never be good enough. And Nicodemus couldn't wrap his mind around this concept because he had spent his entire life learning to do enough and to say enough and to be good enough. But that we don't have to be good enough because God is enough. Week two of our Enough series, we talked about Exodus 3 and 4. We looked at the life of Moses, who had a bunch of excuses for why he wasn't good enough. In fact, we talked about the three questions, one statement, and one plea. 
the three questions of God, but what if, uh, who am I? And what if they don't believe me? And who do I tell them that sent me? And then he ended up saying, God, please send anybody else because I am not good enough. And how God steps in and provides an errand and says, Moses, you're right. You're not good enough, but I'm going to make a way for you where there is no other way. Week three of our Enough series, church, we were so blessed to have my friend, Pastor Myron Pierce, come all the way from uh, inner city Omaha Mission Church and deliver a message entitled, The Answer to Not Enough is Grace. And he looked at 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, who says, I am the chief of sinners. I am the least qualified. I am the most wretched of all of us. I am the furthest away from what it means to be enough. But because of the grace of God, God's riches at Christ's expense, I am made enough. Last week, we looked at a message from 2 Thessalonians entitled, In All Circumstances, God is Enough. And if you remember, I shared the story of Martin Pistorius, a young man who at the age of 12 suffered a neurological and physiological disease that literally entombed him in his own body. And for 13 and a half years, the doctors and his parents and everyone else wrote him off as being brain dead. He was trapped in his own body. And it wasn't until the technology of using his eyes could stimulate uh, on the screen that people understood that he had an incredible knowledge base and that he went on, in spite of his circumstances, to graduate high school, graduate college, start his own company, write a book, and he got married. But Martin, in his story, in Ghost Boy, the book that he wrote, has a statement. He says that in all my circumstances, one thing remained, God. And he said, through the hardest of times, God was as close to me as the air that I breathed. And we talked about how we don't serve a circumstantial God, but we serve a God who's with us in all circumstances. Today, I've entitled my message, Where Are You Going? Where Are You Going? On Tuesday, I was sitting in my office with Pastor Alex, our worship pastor. We meet every week, talk about what's coming up in the worship service. He's responsible for everything that happens from the time you drive onto the campus until you leave, and we talk about all the details. And I got a text message, and I only generally check my phone in the, if I'm in a meeting uh, or respond if it's my wife. But in this case, it was a, a text message that was polarizing at first glance. And the text message literally read, what happens when you come to the brutal realization that you aren't good enough? What happens when you finally get to the place where you realize beyond head knowledge, beyond an inspirational message, beyond a concept of not being good enough, but because of your past mistakes, your current circumstances, or the things that surround you, when you realize, when it actually hits you, not broad brush stroke across the congregation, but when it affects you and you come to the realization that you, right where you're at in your moment in time, realize that you aren't good enough. Glancing down at my phone, I read the message to Alex from this person and I kept it anonymous, who it was from, but we began to dialogue around it and Alex and I, as we talked for the next however long about this, we, we came away with two things. And we're going to talk about that today. 
The first was the question, well, what is your metric for measurement? What is your metric for determining your value, your worth, whether you're good enough? Is your metric the critics or is your metric Christ? Because as long as we are using as a form of measurement the critics of our culture, let's be honest, none of us will ever be good enough. Critics of our culture will measure your worth and your value based on the choices that you've made, the house that you live in, the vehicle that you drive, the insignia on the clothes that you wear, your social standing, your political preferences, whether you're Democrat or Republican, who you're married to, what church you go to or don't go to, the critics of our culture will examine your life and they will create a basis for judgment with which they weigh you against. And as long as we are giving credence to the critics of our culture and using their expectations as our metric for success and being good enough, we're going to be exhausted trying to be enough because the truth is none of us will be good enough we were not created to be good enough so if our metric is others that's a very distorted view of what being good enough looks like on the other end of the spectrum if we allow Christ to be our metric we move from critics of our culture to Christ if we allow the way Christ sees us and the centrality of Christ in our lives to be the metric, then what will happen and what we said in this message exchange was when you allow Christ to be, when you realize that you are not good enough, then you're finally able to experience the fullness of Christ in you and through you being enough. If Christ is your metric, Jesus says, look, you don't have to be good enough, but acknowledge it, say you're sorry for it, in other words, repent, and allow me to be your substitutionary atonement, allow me to be your enough. Today, we have to make a decision of which way we're going to go. Are we going to go the direction of the critics of our culture that drive how we see and perceive ourselves, or are we going to go the way of centrality of Christ to define our value? Where are you going? That's the title of my message today. Let's pray as we jump in. Heavenly Father, I beg you to show up in miraculous ways. Holy Spirit, you're invited in this place to come and move and have your being. God, as your word is spoken, as we lift your name up, we ask that you would draw all people unto yourself and that you would illuminate our minds and ready our hearts to receive from your word. Father, I pray that as I present your truth, may it be done with authenticity and with integrity to your glory and yours alone. May I decrease so that you increase. And Father, may the words of my mouth and the collective meditations of our hearts be holy and pleasing and acceptable in your sight. That we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 8, we're going to read 11 verses together, 1 through 11. We are going to bounce around just a little bit for some context. We'll be in Deuteronomy for a moment. We'll be in another part of John for a moment. Up into what we're going to read right now, Jesus has begun to establish a relationship with the religious elites of the day. 
there are no less than five encounters that Jesus has with the Pharisees and the scribes who are beginning to build a relationship of resentment toward Jesus. What started off as a cute little curiosity, Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night to learn a little bit more, is experience a metamorphosis into something that is now a threat. It's a threat to their identity as religious leaders. It's a threat to the culture at large. It's a threat to everything that was culturally taboo before. It's a threat to everything that they had believed and taught. And so Jesus' relationship with the religious leaders of his day is taking on a very offensive affront. Jesus is also building a reputation for himself throughout the culture. And many people are coming from multiple regions to get a glance. And we're going to experience that together today. Let's read together, beginning in verse 1. And we're going to stop a lot today. Not that we don't stop every week, but we are. And we're going to examine some things. So, John chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. Stop. I would encourage you to circle the word returned. And then I'm going to explain something to you, and then I want you to ask yourself a question. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives in history bears a tremendous amount of significance in Christendom. For followers of Jesus, a lot has transpired on the Mount of Olives. Jesus' first sermon is presented on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives geographically is a collection of three individual mountain peaks that work together collectively. And it is about 2.7 miles from the Mount of Olives to the temple in Jerusalem, the holy city. A lot of times Jesus and other teachers would teach up on hillsides or mountainsides because the valley acted as a natural amphitheater for their voices to carry. And so we see on more than one occasion that Jesus teaches on the side of this mountain to his disciples and to the crowds. The other thing that I want to point out is that Jesus often got alone to this mountain. In other words, this was a familiar place between him and his father. Jesus returned often to this familiar place between him and his father. Friend, I have to ask you, do you have a familiar place between you and the father? Do you have a place that you retreat to, that you get alone to by yourself where you can encounter the father? You know, for for decades now, one of the metrics for a Christian growing in their faith is their devotional life. And we've set this standard spoken or unspoken, that you have to have a daily reading, a devotional thought, a journal entry, and a prayer time to be successful in your relationship with God. The problem with this man-made system is that if we fail to do it, for instance, yesterday I got caught up in my day and I didn't take my normal time to do my devotion, and so I didn't do it. I didn't register it in my journal that I keep. I could have come to my office today when I did it and feel like a complete failure. Like I was completely disconnected from God because I missed my devotion yesterday. The problem with that is that's not how a relationship works. If I forget to text my wife, we're not not married anymore. That's not how that works. If I forget to text my wife, I would argue I'm in a closer relationship with her than I was before. Like this close. You feel me? 
And so here's, here's the problem. I, wanna, I want you to know, I do believe in the spiritual discipline of studying the Word of God and a daily devotion. I think it's necessary. And I would argue that we have multiple implications throughout the Bible, specifically in the New Testament, where we see that this takes place. But what's more important than that is finding a place where you're familiar with the Father and you get alone with God. Do you have a place where you're uh, able to get along with God and, 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 and a place that's familiar between you and the Father? Or are you so caught up in the busyness of life that that place just doesn't exist? One of the easiest things that you can do is to find a place that's familiar for you and the Father. There's a place in my office where I'll go and sit. And that's one of those places where I just, I know that, hey, this is kind of my, my, my reflection space. For monks, they have, like in Russia, I, I know of an Orthodox group there. A friend of mine actually went to uh, do a missionary work out there, a pastor friend of mine. And he went into one of these little three by three by eight booths or boxes. And there, as he walked inside, or maybe it was a little bit bigger, four by four, I, uh, he, he felt the ground. And where the ground was, there were, in the concrete, there were two imprints from where the Russian monks had spent hours and hours and hours getting along with God. Their knees had worn an imprint in the concrete. They were familiar with the Father. It's not as much about where, but the fact that we have a place where we can get along with the Father. I want to encourage you, each one of you, find that place. Maybe it's your vehicle. If I'm driving and I have no noise on, I know the Lord's speaking to my heart. Because 98% of the time, I, I have to have music and noise going all the time. And so if there's no noise, I just know, all right, Lord, I'm listening. And then I complain about the drivers. <laughs> Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he went back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. Now, Jesus would have gotten away in the morning and made this 2.7-mile trek from the Mount of Olives to the, the holy city of Jerusalem where the temple was. And outside the temple was a place for commerce. Outside the temple was a place for community. And outside the temple was a place for philosophy. And outside the temple, you would see bystanders and those on vacation observing. But you would see those devout Jews and others going into the gates of the temple at least three times a day for worship. Worship through prayer, worship through the public reading of scripture. There was a corporate collective worship that took place. This was a hot spot. This was a, this was a common gathering place for many to come. There was, I want you to imagine a city within a city. That is similar to what they would have experienced where the temple was concerned. And a lot of times people would stand outside the temple gates and they would exchange ideas or they would teach. Jesus and his followers is no different. He recognizes that he's got a captive audience. He realizes that he's got people coming in from all over the region. And, and he takes an opportunity to share the gospel, the good news message of who he is and what he's doing there. And so he teaches, and there would have been other teachers as well. The second thing that I want to point out here is it says that Jesus sat down and he taught them. This is very normal in their culture. In Jewish tradition, a rabbi would have sat while the public reading of scripture was done and then would have interpreted and explained what was being read. 
All the while, those in the congregation would have stood to listen to the message. If you've ever been in a more traditional setting, and it's even happened here, I have a really good friend, Russ Cowanhoven, who's preached here twice uh, already, and he'll be preaching here again in September. I'm very excited to have him. We're doing a, a, a marriage series called Life After the Bells in September, and Russ is coming to share a message with us. I'm so excited for that. But if you ever listen to Russ preach, he will almost always ask you to stand for the reading of Scripture. How many of you have been in a church setting where somebody's asked you to stand for the reading of Scripture? Raise your hand. It's okay. Quick strap hole. That's more than half of you. It seems really weird to us because it's not something that we do as commonplace. But truth be told, that's very, very customary and very traditional that they would stand for the public reading of Scripture while the rabbi would sit. And it shows a sign of reverence for the Word of God when you stand collectively. Now, it doesn't make it right or wrong. It's just a tradition, something that you would do. You cannot not hear the Word of God if you're sitting. But I want us to understand culturally where that pattern of behavior comes from and that it is acceptable and it is actually an act of worship to demonstrate reverence for God's word. So Jesus sits and he begins to teach. It says a crowd soon gathered around him. Verse 3, as he was speaking, the teachers of religious law, and if you wanted to make a notation there, you could also put the scribes. There were three religious groups, well, the scribes, the Essenes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, all a part of the, the, the three are part of the Sanhedrin. But here the scribes, the religious law, the leaders of religious law, and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Three things we're going to talk about. One, difference between the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes were responsible for the written tradition of the law of Moses. They were responsible for teaching the law of Moses. The Pharisees were like the religious leaders. They were responsible for the oral traditions and the memorization of the laws of Moses. And as the Pharisees, religious leaders, lawyers, judges, they were responsible to uphold or make sure that others we're upholding the laws. Now, that's one. Two, let's talk about getting caught in the act of adultery. I want to go on record and assume that these Pharisees and religious leaders were looking to find somebody's fault. Let me explain. As sin goes, adultery, can we all agree, is one of those sins that doesn't generally happen outside broad daylight in front of everybody. It's a sin that is, we think is a secret sin. And so in order to find that sin, somebody would have to go looking for it. So it's possible, even likely, that this group of Pharisees would have gone and busted in on this woman that we know to be married or engaged, and we'll talk about that in a moment, and this man, and caught them in the act of adultery. That's a little awkward. But they went looking for it. They were looking to find fault with others. How many of you know somebody like that that looks to find fault in everything? You just get some groans and moans. The third thing. Not only did this religious group of leaders find fault, but they drug her very publicly and put her in the center of the crowd that had gathered around Jesus. I do not believe... Now, we can look at oral tradition and history that they would have given this woman the time to collect her belongings or even put her clothes back on. 
It's possible that she may have grabbed a bed linen. I'm just speculating at best. But I can imagine that she has put drug either by her hair or by her arms by this mob of religious leaders. And she has placed smack dab in the center of Jesus along with the crowd that had gathered around him and his disciples followed by the scribes and the Pharisees. She has drugged there. Let's pay attention very closely to how she's described and defined. It says, they brought this woman who had been caught in the act of adultery and they put her in front of the crowd. Verse 4, teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. How many times does the enemy, how many times does the enemy get a hold of your head and you base who you are off of your decisions and not your identity in Christ. They didn't give this woman the dignity to even give her a name or call her by name. They only identified her by her choices. How many of you know the enemy works like that? The enemy doesn't want you to know that you are redeemed, regenerated, and that you are made new in Christ and that you have an identity in Christ. The enemy is going to associate you with your past choices and behaviors and even publicly. This woman is brought out very publicly and is identified by her choices, not her identity, but her choices. Notice that it says this woman and she and her. Nowhere does it say in the collection of this text that she had anybody standing with her. She didn't have a husband to defend her. She didn't have a fiance to take up, 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 you know, defend her. She didn't have her father to defend her. She didn't have any friends to come to her rescue. She was drugged before the entire group, standing there, stranded. How many of you can agree that that would be the loneliest place on the planet at that time? To be standing in front of everybody, bearing everything, with no one to defend you. Is there a lonelier position on the planet? This woman is drugged before everybody. And these guys say, teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now to be caught in the act of adultery means that there would have had to have been two or more eyewitnesses to what took place. In other words, multiple men saw her transgressions, her infidelity. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? Well, would you turn with me, keep your finger in John. I want to encourage you to flip to about one-eighth of the way through your Bible to the book of Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is a collection of God's heart. And by a collection of God's heart, I mean it's a collection of laws, but the law was not intended to demonstrate right or wrong. The law was intended to demonstrate the heart of God and what pleases God and what displeases God. And so here in Deuteronomy chapter 22, we're going to read two verse, or three verses together, 22, 23, and 24. Let's look together where the Pharisees and the scribes got their accusation, where they called Jesus out. Deuteronomy 22, 22, 3, and 24. If a man is discovered committing adultery, both he and the woman must die. Plural, not singular. In this way, you will purge Israel of such evil. Keep that in mind, the last part of that. Purge Israel of such evil. Verse 23, suppose a man meets a young woman, a virgin who is engaged to be married, and has sexual intercourse with her. If this happens within the town, you must take both of them, plural, 
to the gates of that town and stoned them, plural, to death. The woman is guilty because she did not scream for help. The man must die because he violated another man's wife. In this way, you will purge this evil from among you. So the heart of God, in this moment, if you were to read this in context, the heart of God is less about the, 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 the adultery and more about what separates us from God. Do you see that? Do you see that this isn't just a running list of rules and, rules and regulations and do's and don'ts? It is a safeguard that helps us to see the heart of God, what pleases the heart of God, and what we should yearn for in the heart of God. And in keeping with wanting to know and experience the heart of God, we should stay away from adultery. We should purge our community of this type of behavior because this types of behavior keep us from Christ. That's what's going on here. So here, the teachers of religious law have grabbed this woman. They drug her out very publicly in front of everybody, and they called Jesus out. Teacher, they said. I love that they call him teacher, but I want us to understand something. They were not identifying Jesus as their teacher. If anything, this was patronizing Jesus. You can almost see the quotation marks in their fingers. Teacher, anybody who had a following that had a voice to communicate was considered a teacher. Not everybody a rabbi, but a teacher. In this case, they're calling Jesus rabbi. They're mocking him. And they're saying, teacher, this woman here was caught in the act of adultery. Now the law of Moses says to stone her. We know this because the scribes know the written tradition. The Pharisees know the oral tradition. What do you say? What they're doing, church, is so intentional. It's from, from from a carnal perspective, if you're trying to catch somebody off guard and, and, and get them to where they have no easy way out, this is brilliant. This is a brilliant plan from the religious leaders. And it was done on purpose. Notice who's missing from the equation. The man. They didn't, so what that tells us then, if you just hold to the text, is if the law says you bring the man out and the man is guilty, oh, and by the way, drag the woman too because she didn't scream for help. If they didn't follow the letter of the law, were they more concerned with the woman's sin or catching Jesus? They were, trying to, they were trying to defame Jesus and catch him in, 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 in his own rules and regulations and, and their own rules and regulations. It wasn't about the sin at all. How many times will people use your choices and your mistakes to make it about something it never was intended to be. Most of the time, if I'm being really honest, it's called projection. Instead of dealing with the junk in my own life, I'd rather point out your junk and make sure you know how messed up you are. Because then somehow, you not being good enough makes me just a little bit better. I can't think of much more of a gross sin than that. Well, here's what's going on. They come to Jesus and they know they've got him. My kids, I don't know where this came from, but uh, with their gummy worms, they'd say, I got you where I want you, and now I'm going to eat you. <laughs> like, those gummy worms are, are crawling in fear. But they've got Jesus where they want him. They've got him trapped. And here's what I mean. By asking teacher, here's what the law of Moses says. What do you say? If Jesus gives this woman grace... If he excuses her sin, he's committing blasphemy because he is then acting as God. And at this time, he was not widely accepted as the Son of God as one three part of, or one third part of the Trinity of God. 
If Jesus gives her grace, then what he's doing is he's saying that the law of Moses, which drives their community, again, it's their foundation, it's everything that they built up until that point. If he says that she's forgiven, it literally creates this sense that the law of Moses is null and void. And Jesus is going to be hung for blasphemy. On the other hand, if Jesus says, you're right, this woman messed up, she committed adultery, we should stone her, then civically, he is committing a crime. It was not permissible for a Jew to penalize another person to death. That was reserved only for the Romans. Think about Jesus' own trial. How many trials did he go to? And eventually, he ended up in front of Pontius Pilate. Why? Because he could not be judged by the Jews. He was brought to Rome. It wasn't the Jews' job to judge. So if Jesus says, her great, I'm giving grace and she's forgiven, then he's throwing out the law of Moses, that's blasphemy. And if Jesus says, go ahead and condemn her to death, he's now committing a crime, a civic crime, and he is responsible. Brilliant. Look what Jesus does. They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and he wrote in the dust with his finger. You know, I, I did some reading and research on this and at best, we can assume what Jesus was writing in this text. But many theologians wrote in there, as I was reading, that they believe that Jesus, and there's actually some other texts to kind of uh, affirm what they believe and why, they believe that Jesus was writing the sins of the people by name that were accusing this woman. Imagine that. You're there to make accusations, and Jesus is like, hold on, hold that thought. Andrew, gluttony, a lot. <laughs> Andrew, speeding, way too much. You know, what, what, whatever it is. And here's the deal. It says here that he began writing with his finger. Verse 7. They kept demanding an answer. Tell us, teacher, what do you say? Why would they demand an answer? Because the fact that Jesus isn't responding and they're demanding, they're patronizing Jesus over and over again, demanding a response, you get the sense that the crowd is beginning to stir. There's this mob mentality that's begun to form and they begin to question, what's he going to say? Is he going to say the law of Moses is null and void? Is he going to commit a crime? What's Jesus going to do? And there's this tension that's forming and there's this, this ag agitation that's rising up amongst the mob. And so as they're demanding, tell us, teacher, Jesus stands up and he says, all right. But let the one of you who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he effectively drops the mic and walks off the stage. <laughs> what he's saying is, hey, if you're perfect, pick up a rock and get going. But look here, I've got the names of every one of you and all your sins. You without sin throw the first stone. And then he stooped down because he wasn't done writing. There's more to this story. When the accusers, the scribes and the Pharisees, heard this, they were a bunch of cowards. Well, that's not what the Bible says, but that's my interpretation. They slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Man, man, 
These men who had built their entire identity on being good enough and doing good enough and saying enough had just been called to the carpet and it was revealed to not just their religious sect, but it was revealed to the crowd and the mass of people, the bystanders, that they were not good enough, that what they had done wasn't enough, that what they had said wasn't sufficient, that what they had studied wasn't going to save them, that what they had taught wasn't going to take them off the hook, that they weren't good enough. They had a crisis of identity. In this moment, they had every opportunity to refute Jesus and demonstrate in their pious behaviors and attitudes that they were enough, and yet none of them could do it. Why? Because none of us can be good enough apart from God. The grace of God through Jesus Christ. And so one by one, these loud mouths, starting with the oldest to the youngest, kind of look around. Very slowly make their exit. Until standing in the middle of the crowd is Jesus face to face with this woman caught in adultery. Verse 10. Jesus stood up again and he said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? Perhaps the greatest tool that I can offer any follower of Jesus Christ is this. The Bible says to take every thought captive and make it fully surrendered or obedient to the word of God. When the enemy comes like a thief in the night with every intention of stealing, killing, and destroying you, and he steals your pride and your identity, and he kills you one reminder after the next, And he destroys you with one false sense of identity after another. Remember that Jesus answers the question or answers answers this question in the form of a question. Where are your accusers? It's been said twice already in this series and I want to say it again. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far your transgressions, your sins are removed from you. So the next time the enemy reminds you of your brokenness, you remind the enemy. You ask, where are my accusers? Jesus paid it all. He looks at this woman. And I have to believe, now this is going to, I'm going to insert just a little bit of my own, my, own, uh, my own understanding of Jesus and God's character here, okay? This is how I see this. This is my opinion. I get the sense that this woman standing in the middle of her brokenness, standing surrounded by a crowd that's observing her brokenness, naked or barely clothed, her makeup is smeared from the tears, she can hardly see through the mascara and the the, the sobbing, her hair is disheveled, and she's standing there trying to cover herself from the crowd, and her identity is known, and her sins are on display for everybody, and and, and her husband or her fiancé doesn't know about what's happened yet, she's already thinking about the ramifications of this choice in front of everybody, she's just broken I just get this picture that her chin is attached to her chest. That she's just hanging her head. 
And Jesus steps in, in typical Jesus fashion, and he takes her chin, and he holds her chin in the palm of his hand, and he pulls it up, and he makes eye contact with this woman, and he says, woman, look around you. Has anyone stayed to condemn you? And this woman in total amazement, wiping her eyes, looks and says, no, Lord, none of them are here to condemn me. And in shame, she begins to attempt to put her chin back to her chest. And as she does so, Jesus, in his strength and in his adequacy, holds her chin up, will not allow her to hang her head in shame and humiliation. And he says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Would you hold your finger here in John 8 and just flip maybe five pages to your left? And let's read together John 3.16, perhaps the most known scripture globally across all people groups. John 3.16, for God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Most of us put a hard stop there because we've memorized that passage but I want us to read the next verse together God sent his son into the world not to judge in most other translations it reads condemn God sent his son into the world not to condemn or judge the world but to save the world through him now that in context read John 8 11 with me again John 8 11 where are your accusers? Didn't any of them condemn you? No, Lord, she says. And Jesus said, God did not send me into this world to condemn you, but to save you through me. He didn't deny that she sinned. He wasn't making excuses for her. He wasn't justifying her junk. He was offering his substitutionary atonement. He says, I am here because my Father in heaven loves you and he's made a way for you where there is no other plausible way. And in the middle of this brokenness in front of everybody, he says, does anybody else condemn you? No, sir, then I'm not either. But he doesn't leave it there because Jesus doesn't just leave us hanging you see, when we accept the grace of God that he has through his son, Jesus Christ, we have an opportunity, and I would argue an obligation, to go and live our life in a way that glorifies God. Now, it says, go and sin no more. Let's talk about that for just a moment. To go and sin no more, to experience perfection this side of heaven, can we all agree that it's physically impossible? It, it is physically impossible comma, without the presence of the Holy Spirit leading your life. Exclamation point. If we keep the Holy Spirit out of the equation, we have but our failures to hold on to. If we allow the presence of the Holy Spirit to infiltrate our lives, to direct our thoughts, and to lead our actions... We have the power and the authority to live a life of sanctification that glorifies God. And 
when he says, go and sin no more. This is about choices, but it's also about how Jesus sees sin. When you're a new creation in Christ, he doesn't see your sin. He sees your salvation. So which way are you going to go? I mean, we're standing at a crossroads where you have to make a decision. You've had five weeks of incredible God moments through his word. If you have not heard all five sermons in this series, I cannot implore you enough to go back and start Easter Sunday, April 1st, and watch all five of them. You will be blessed. I had a woman today tell me, Pastor, I have watched Myron, Pastor Myron's message, over and over and over and over again. And I keep watching your Good Friday service because they they just kind of, they work together and they're rocking my life. Please go back. But here's, here's my, we're at a crossroads. All too many of us, all too often, are asking the same question that Alex and I had to answer this week. What do I do when I come to the full understanding that I am completely inadequate and not good enough? And Alex and I wrestled with that question. And Alex, I said, Alex, I didn't tell him who it was. I just kind of shared the story. And Alex said, he leaned back and the Holy Spirit just got a hold of his tongue. And the first thing out of his, Alex's mouth was, by whose standards are you not enough? By whose, he said, I would ask the question, by whose standards are you measuring your value? Because if your value is, is placed on the, 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 the critics of our culture, you're not good enough. But if you allow Christ to be your metric through him you are enough and so we asked that question and we finished it this way Alex and I finished our thought this way and I'll I'll finish the series where I started with you I would argue that perhaps the best place that you and I can find ourselves in this moment is the absolute utter realization that we are not good enough Because maybe, just maybe, when you and I fully understand the depravity of who we are and what we've done, we'll stop trying to be good enough and allow God to be enough.